Hey, let's do this this morning. I'm excited to be here. I hope you are too. And I hope you're ready to learn. And this morning, if you're here today, uh, we'll go to John chapter 4. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're in the right place. And I will tell you up front, uh, the majority of the message is geared for those in the room who have trusted Christ as Savior and our responsibility to share Jesus with those that we know. And our family, our friends, and our coworkers, and really anybody we might have a relationship with. Uh, But if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, uh, I can assure you from the preaching and the reading of our text, you're going to find a woman who comes to great faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, you'll see some things there, and we'll try to illuminate those as we go. But church family, this morning, we're talking about relationship evangelism. And we we introduced that idea a couple of weeks ago, and we actually took a poll. We actually took a, a kind of a test and said, hey, uh, if you got saved uh, either from uh, maybe you're just driving by and you came into church, and man, that's how you met Christ. Uh, that was one option. The other option is someone that you didn't know, a perfect stranger, knocked on your door, gave you a track. And then we asked for the third group, and this is where about 90% of our congregation landed. Someone you know, a friend, a family member, a mom or a dad invited you, uh, either led you to Christ or led you to church where you got saved. And uh, we learned from that, and we're learning from Scripture that relationship evangelism is by far the most effective way of reaching someone with the gospel. And I'm a firm believer, uh, and, and you don't even have to, I mean, it's not faith, it's, it's observation. I'm a firm believer that people get saved out door knocking. It happens, it's beautiful, we should do that. Uh, we find that in the example of scripture, but we also find, and far more we find as the example of scripture, is someone like Andrew going to get his brother Peter and saying, I found the Christ, come and see uh, him. And so uh, we're gonna start with prayer actually, because we're gonna read a bunch this morning in John chapter number four. And so, We're going to pray. I'll give you a bit of introductory thoughts, and then we're going to jump into the text. And uh, we'll do the majority of our sermon this morning. We'll just be reading and understanding the text. And then I'll have a sermon at the very end, and it won't be a long one. We won't get out at 1145. I don't know how that happened last week, but uh, we'll get out at the normal time this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I need you today. And uh, Father, you know my heart and my desire, God, is simply to accomplish your will. And uh, you gave us your word, and you gave us uh, the structure of church, and you chose the foolishness of preaching. And uh, for some reason or another, Lord, you counted faithful and put me in this ministry as the pastor here to teach. And uh, Father, I don't take pride in that. It's, uh, It's a scary responsibility. And I just pray, God, for the courage to do it right. And I pray, God, for the strength to be uh, loyal to the text and the humility, Father, to say only what you'd have me say. And I pray, Father, for each and every church member here this morning, God, to listen intently and um, to decide ahead of time, God, again, I don't mean to be redundant, Lord, but you know where we're going. And I, I pray that we decide ahead of time, God, to just submit. If it's clear in the scripture, it ought to be a decision that we don't even get to vote in, that we would just surrender to your will. I pray again, Lord, if someone's here today and doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would see just the grace that you offered this woman at the well. And uh, Lord, a very familiar passage, but a beautiful one at that. And I pray that they'd see that grace that's offered to to her, that can be offered to them. And uh, Lord, we find that you love sinners. Lord, you reached out to them and you gave grace. And Lord, you dealt with their sin for sure, as we see even in this story, but you also extended an amazing amount of grace. And you recognize this great faith this woman had on this mountaintop. And you also had a job for her. And uh, that job was not an easy job, particularly in this story. And I pray that we would lean heavy into that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, relationship evangelism, let me give you a definition for it. I want you to listen carefully. I may read it twice, but listen carefully. Relationship evangelism happens when we engage our personal connections and relationships with lost people to bring them to the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. 
All right. Uh, that doesn't mean we, we maybe leverage them in a guilt way, but where we actually turn on, we engage that relationship to bring that lost person to the, as first John says, the record of who Jesus Christ is and was and what he did for them. And so we all have people that we know. We all have friends. Uh, that we know. We've got family, perhaps. Uh, uh, I have a brother who is not saved, and maybe that's your situation as well. We've all got neighbors and acquaintances, uh, and to be honest, and you'll see it in the morning text, we also have people we have relationships with that the relationship isn't a great relationship, and yet God expects us to engage those connections to create opportunities for that lost person to come to know Jesus Christ. And so let me say this about the gospel. I hope it's occurred to you. I assume at one point you've thought about it, but uh, the all-encompassing mission of all of creation is the gospel. You ever wonder why God made the stars also, as the Bible tells us? Well, he made the stars to declare his handiwork so that they are without excuse, that even lost people in the furthest reaches of the world would look up and realize that there is a God who made all of this. Everything in creation is geared toward the redemption of mankind. Have you ever thought about why man has a conscience? No other living creature on the planet sits there and thinks, why was I put here? What's the meaning of life? My dog is only concerned about what their next meal is, right? Uh, you're pet parakeet might be able to repeat a couple words, but has no consciousness of his being. Have you ever wondered why God uh, allowed man to have a conscience? Well, the Bible is very clear to us that in our own conscience, we are a law unto ourselves, that man can consider his own ways as a sinner, and man can realize that he is imperfect, and he can look up at heaven and realize there must be a God of order who cares enough about me to show himself to me. Have you ever wondered why the law of God exists, the Old Testament? Well, it's a schoolmaster to guide us to the Savior. Why did God send his son into the world? To seek and to save that which is lost. And so you're never going to escape the gospel-centered nature of all creation and all of life. And so think about this. If the gospel is the center of all creation and all life and reason, isn't, he the, isn't the gospel the center of your relationships? Maybe he gave you, not maybe, but if, if the reason the stars exist is so the gospel can be proclaimed, the reason your relationships exist is so that the gospel can be proclaimed. And sometimes we disconnect that. The reason you have a job today, yes, is to provide for your own. Should you not do that? You're worse than an infidel. But have you ever considered that you have a job, the job you have today for the sake of the gospel? The home that God has you in, whether it's your dream home or your starter home or your renting an apartment, the place God has you living in is for the sake of the gospel. And somehow we managed to disconnect that from the purpose of the Great Commission. But the inescapable reality as you look at life and I look at life is that all of this is meant to bring mankind back into the presence of our creator. And so I want to challenge our church family to engage with that reality, to wake up to that reality, to redeem the time because we don't have a lot of it left. Uh, we need to live uh, not as though we have some things that belong to the gospel's work and some things that don't. And a lot of times Christians do that. They'll say like, well, you know, this is my church day and these are the things I use for God. But over here, these are the things I use for myself and my own means and my own pursuits. And a lot of times, and here's where I'm going with this, a lot of times relationships land over there because like, oh, that's my best friend or it's my family. Yeah, I got my church friends and I got my church family, but this is my other set of people. I'm not even saying you shouldn't have this. I'm saying you should engage this for the opportunity to witness to them. You go to school and you say, well, yeah, but that's just school. That's not related to the gospel. Yes, it is. The teacher that you have, the room that you're in, the period you got that teacher is for the sake of the gospel. 
Uh, Everything in our life, including our relationships, belong to Jesus for his use. But that's hard. And I totally understand it. I get that it's scary. Now, in some ways, witnessing and inviting your friends to church is a little easier because they know you. But for the exact same reason, it's really hard because they know you. So like in one respect, you're not talking to a perfect stranger at a door. It's a little easier because you're talking to your brother or you're talking to your best friend or you're talking to the guy you played basketball with in high school. So it's easier in that respect. But at the exact same way, reason, it's harder because they know you. There's more on the line with this relationship versus the random guy at the bus stop God told you to give a track to. What if it gets awkward? I'm going to go home for Thanksgiving and I'm going to talk to my mom about the gospel. What if it gets awkward? It can get awkward at the bus stop. The guy's going to get on, you know, bus number 14 and drive away. You'll never see him again. But what if it gets awkward at Thanksgiving meal? What if they reject me? Here's where we're going to go. What if I have a history with them? What if I hurt them? Or what if they hurt me? Am I really supposed to leverage that relationship for the gospel's sake? So oftentimes what happens is because we know them, we are waiting for someone else to reach those people. Because it's so weird. I don't want to ask them about it. And so we kind of like pray, Lord, send someone to bring the gospel to my mom. But the fact of the matter is, statistically speaking, you have a far higher chance of reaching that person than I do knocking on their door. They don't know if I'm selling them a vacuum or giving them some heresy or the gospel. Statistically speaking, your relationship is the best opportunity they have to receive Christ. Like I mentioned two weeks ago, we talked about this maniac of Gadara. And Christ left this maniac in the Decapolis to be a witness. And we talked about it just a little bit. Christ didn't leave behind an apostle. He left behind a guy he had spoken to for maybe a few minutes and at most a few hours. Christ didn't even stay himself there for very long. And yet he left a man who he had spoke to one time because he would be the most effective soul winner in that entire region. Because the Bible says he would go back home to his own friends and he'd bring the gospel to them, even to the people who had bound him with chains and fetters. He was supposed to go back and use and engage those personal connections for the sake of the gospel. We're going to find another shiny example of relationship evangelism in the woman at the well. I love that God uses men and I love that God uses women in the exact same fashion to use their relationships. Now, I will say this woman over here, in her opinion, and maybe even in ours, she doesn't have a lot of relationships left to leverage. And yet she does. Okay, and we're going to see that today in our text. Let's begin and be students of the word in John chapter 4, verse number 1. It says, when therefore the Lord knew had the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, look at verse three, he left Judea and departed again into Samaria. So here's what happens at this particular time in ministry in John chapter four, Christ is not in Galilee where he normally is. He's actually down in Jerusalem, in Judea, and he's preaching and man, people are trusting in him. People are getting saved. The disciples are baptizing all kinds of people and the Pharisees begin to take notice. They begin to notice the rumblings of what's going on there. They begin to notice that people are beginning to follow this person. And have you ever wondered why Christ would do something awesome and then leave? Maybe he would raise someone from the dead and then he'd be gone. Or he got baptized and heavens opened and God himself spoke and the Holy Spirit descended. And then Jesus went to the desert. You ever wonder why he do that? Here's why. And this is just a brief kind of studious thing to cover. Only two things can happen if God dons flesh and comes to earth. Two things. One, man will worship him. Two, man will kill him. 
because he's a threat to their systems. And so here's the problem. You have those people who are worshiping Jesus, and then you have those people, if he stays too long in one place, who want to kill him. So what do you think the logical conclusion, should he stay in that place, be? Well, those who will worship him will try to defend him. Those who will try to kill him are going to end up going to war with those who worship him. And Christ didn't come to start a holy war. He came to die at Pentecost, or he came to die at Passover. He came to die at an appointed time. And should he have stayed there too long, the, the, the Pharisees would have killed him, which is why he comes into Jerusalem that last time, flips the tables, forces their hands, dies on a cross and resurrects. Christ was wise about this. But here he comes into Jerusalem, and now he leaves. But pick up in verse number three. He left Judea and departed into Galilee. Now between Galilee and, some, and Jerusalem is this place called Samaria. The Samaritans are considered rejects by the Jews. Uh, they're considered rejects by the Gentiles. Uh, they have a, a very similar form of worship to the Jews. Uh, they believe in the first five books of Moses. Uh, they worship the same God, but they reject some of the other uh, uh, prophets uh, in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, we're going through this area. We could have walked around like most Jews, but he says, I'm going through it. Look at verse number five. <clears throat> then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's noon, it's the middle of the day. There cometh a woman of Samaria. So Christ seems to be there first, and this woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Now, real quick, we'll come back to this at the end of the, the passage. But it's a good thing the disciples were gone because they were going to reject this woman as well. Now, it's just Jesus and it's just this woman at this well in the middle of the day. Verse 9, then saith the woman of Samaria unto him. Uh, no, forgive me. I'm sorry. Back up in verse 7. Then cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am of a uh, woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So here's what she says to Christ. Hey, listen, sir, I, I don't know who you are, but this is not how this works. The, the Jews don't ask favors of the Samaritans and the favor or the Samaritans don't ask favors of the Jews. We don't really talk. We don't exchange kindnesses. And what you're beginning to see, whether you know it or not, if you know the story, you'll recognize it. If you don't know the story, hold on, we're going to get to it. But what you're beginning to see right here in this, the first exchange with this woman is you're beginning to see a woman who has become accustomed with rejection. Now, if you know the story, you know that's true. She's had five husbands. The man she's living with right now is not her husband. She's got to come in the middle of the day to draw water. Can't come in the morning with the women. And here she has this exchange with this Jewish man. She's standing there and this guy, he says, hey, would you give me water? And, and she knows she's a morally flawed Samaritan woman who's rejected of the people in her own city. And she says, hey, let's, let's not do this. Let's not have this conversation. In other words, she's trying to avoid any further relationship, conflict, or rejection. She's kind of hedging her bets, if you will. She's saying, hey, um, before we get too far into this and you kind of figure out what's going on, I, I, we don't really talk. This is not how this works. You, you can draw your own water. I, I don't want to make you unclean. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Uh, and she's hedging her bets. Look at verse number 10. Jesus just completely dismisses her, her statement. Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is, who I am, that saith to thee, give me to drink, Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. 
Christ doesn't even address her initial rejection. He's he's concerned that I don't want any more relational conflict. And Christ says, no, 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 you're missing who's in front of you. He's trying to draw her into an understanding of who he is. Look at verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? It's a logical observation. She says, how are you going to draw water that that I can drink? You don't even have a bucket. Verse 12. Art thou greater, she's speaking, than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She says, who, who are you? Are you some important person? I, I know you're a Jew, I, but I don't know who you are. And you say you have something for me, but we're not even really supposed to be talking. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. He says, I'm not talking about this water. Verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, it's very obvious to us, the reader, he's talking about salvation. He's kind of caught up on the water, and Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a living water that makes you alive, and you'll never thirst again, and it springs up into everlasting life, but she's still kind of caught up on the missing pail. But she wants what he's offering. Notice what she says in verse 15. The woman saith unto him, sir... Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She says, if you can give me something where I don't have to come back in the middle of the day, like I'll, I'll take it, but I don't know what it is. And notice what Christ says to her next. One of the most beautiful gospel exchanges you're ever going to see in the New Testament. Notice what he says. Jesus saith unto her, go, call thy husband and come hither. And if, 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 if I put myself in her shoes, here's what I'm thinking. I knew it was going to happen. I, I, knew, I knew it was going to come out. This is, this is why I kind of dismissed it at the beginning. I, uh, we don't really talk to each other. Can we just not? I, I, I've got enough problems. I, I don't want to really, I don't want to give you any water. I don't want to talk. I don't want to go through this exchange. And now all of a sudden it's coming to fruition. And, and he says, well, go call your husband. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now that means more than you might realize. We'll come back to that. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And him whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. And the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Now, real quick, you might think that's a statement of respect. And if you do, that's fine. But the following statement is actually a statement of protest. So in my observation, here's what she says. Hey, I tried to avoid this whole thing. And somehow you brought it up and you must be some kind of a preacher. uh, And now you obviously know that I'm some kind of a sinner. And so let's look closely at the next statement. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and ye say, and Jesus hasn't said this to her, but she is accusing him of having this opinion. Ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Here's what she says. Okay, preacher man, you, uh, you, you say that I, sh- I should worship God and you're calling me a sinner and I'm not going to even deny that. You're right. I've had five husbands. The man I'm living with is not my husband, but you tell me to love God and I'm trying, but you won't even let me come to the temple to worship and make sacrifice. You understand in the context of this day, the Samaritans were not allowed at the temple mount. And he's saying, you're standing here in front of me and you're condemning me, but you won't even let me come to God. You won't even let me come to that mountain to worship. My father said I could worship him here, but you're saying I can't worship him here. And so you're telling me I'm some kind of sinner, but you won't even let me make it right. And sometimes churches are guilty of that, aren't we? We look at the sinner and say, you're so wicked. But if they walked in the door, we'd all go, oh. That's who she thinks Jesus is. That's who a lot of people think church is. 
But this woman is, is staring down uh, uh, what she again thinks is rejection all over again. You asked for water. I tried to talk you out of it. You offered me water. I tried to accept it. But then you told me I was a sinner and your people won't even let me come to God and make it right. To this woman, it's just another moment of rejection. But please lean in close to the emotions of the next verses. Look at verse 21. Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me. He says, let me speak for myself. Don't don't take the words of the Jews as my words. Let me speak for myself. Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. Worship the Father. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Here's what he just said. He said, you have the right faith. He said, it's not about what mountain you worship in. He says, God is seeking for people like you who worship him in spirit and in truth. He's not looking for people who are perfect because this woman is far from it. But God has a desire to have a relationship with her and Jesus is inviting her into that relationship. Look at verse 24. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He said, it's not about worshiping on mountains and it's not about worshiping in buildings. It's about what you're talking about. It's about that worshiping in your heart that you have a desire. Now listen, this next verse, at least to me, shows the depth of this woman's uh, uh, trust and rejection issues. Notice what she says. Verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. Here's what Jesus just said. Hey, now is the time where it doesn't matter what mountain you worship in. You come to God in spirit and in truth. And the woman says, yeah, I get that day's going to come when the Messiah comes and he's going to fix all this broken prejudice system where we can't come and you can't worship here. And I'm not good enough to come. She said, I know that's going to come someday. But look at what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am him. He tells her it's now. I'm here. I am come to give you eternal life. You'll never thirst again. But notice the contrast. There's such a a juxtaposition in verse 26, this humble pleading of faith of verse 25, this affirmation of Christ in verse 26. And then notice these antagonists in verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled. They were confused that he talked with the woman. Yet no man say, what seekest thou or why talkest with her? What does this have to do with relationship evangelism, pastor? Look at the next few verses. Verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men. Here's what happens. This is a big deal. Here is this this woman with a history. This woman with a broken testimony, this woman with a scarlet letter, if you would, this woman who has to come and draw water in the heat of the day, this woman who's been married five times and been divorced, this woman who's living with a man who won't give her the dignity of giving her a a marriage, uh, she goes straight to the gates of her city and talks straight to the men. And notice what she says, verse 29. Come, see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now, in the following eight verses, what you're going to find is Jesus is still back on the well, uh, and he's talking with the disciples, trying to straighten out their understanding of loving all people. But pick up in verse number 39. A great harvest is coming. Look at verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and abode there two days, And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, 
for we have heard him ourselves and now uh, and know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So listen, here you have a front row seat to a woman who goes and evangelizes her entire city, leveraging and engaging every single relationship, listen, even the broken ones, to bring her city, her entire city, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But can I ask you, do you think that was easy for her? This is where I'm going this morning. We've, we've preached through this verse and we've developed the front end of this text, but we've never thought, I've never thought about this. Do you think it was easy for her to go back to that city, to take a risk, to go back to the men of that city, knowing what she uh, told us about her story, knowing how guarded she was even toward Christ and rejection? Do you think, do you not think there were some emotional barriers she had to face when going down that hill toward the people who knew who she was? So here's what I want us to focus in on this morning. And here's the sermon portion of the text or this morning's message. I want us to look at three fears that keep us from going home with the gospel. Three things we're going to look at in our text that if we're not careful, will we'll give us a permission slip to not take the gospel to those in our home or those in our history or those within our reach. Sometimes, number one, we allow the fear of facing who we once were to stop us from bringing the gospel to people. We knock on the, when we knock on the door of a total stranger, We never have to face that. You knock on the door of a total stranger, they don't know what you once were. They don't know about your previous failed marriage. They don't know about your history of alcoholism. They don't know about your years of absentee parenting. And so in many ways, it's much easier to knock on a door of someone you don't know. But when you go home with the gospel, those things come up. And can I just tell you, they should come up because it is a powerful testimony of the grace of God in your life as an offer of the grace of God in their life. Listen, do not let your past stop you from going home with the gospel. Notice what she says. It comes up. In fact, it's the only thing that comes up. Look at verse 29. She shows up to the men at the gates of the city and says this, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Listen, these men knew who she was. He knew who she was. And the beautiful thing is that Christ knew who she was, and yet Christ had redeemed her and was beginning a transformational work in her life. And listen, that's the power of the gospel. So if you're here today and you say, man, I want to invite my family to True Purpose Sunday, but they know who I am, or they know who I was, good. That's a prime example of the grace of God in your life. That's a prime example of what saving faith can do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So yes, you were one thing, but now Jesus has made you another. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 gives us a great commentary on this idea. He says, Know ye not that unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, man, I've done some of those things. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. If you're afraid to go back to your brother who you wronged, well, the good news is Jesus made you a new creature. And that is a solid point to stand on and go and say, hey, listen, you know who I was and you know what I was and Jesus knew who I was and he knows what I was and he's made me something different. Those old things are passed away and all things are become new. Engage that testimony. Leverage that testimony to show them the firsthand power of the gospel. 
Listen, your brother who saw you abuse substance can see you a new creature. Your mama who tried to warn you about that lifestyle that you chose can see you now become a new creature. Your dad, who may not have, he may have been the guy who gave you your first beer. He can see the new creature that you're becoming. The coworker who, who uh, knows your speech or knew your speech around the water cooler can now see a changed life as an opportunity for them to reach the God, to come to the gospel. So engage that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of who you once were as though that would somehow disqualify you from going home with the gospel. But let's get uncomfortable for a minute, okay? I told you there was something uncomfortable coming. This one personally for me was, was really uncomfortable a couple of years ago. Sometimes we are afraid of who we were, so we are afraid to bring the gospel back. But there's another thing that happens in this story too. If we're not careful, sometimes we allow a fear of who they were to cause us to not bring the gospel home. Think about the story for a minute. This woman had five different men in that city who had given her a bill of divorcement. And you say, that's all her fault. Well, some of it certainly was her fault. But if you know anything about the culture of the day, a woman could very, very, very seldom get a bill of divorcement for her husband. Almost exclusively, a man would get the bill of divorcement toward his wife. You said, well, why could he get a bill of divorcement? I'm not talking about divorce or remarriage right now, but I wanna, I'm just going to read for you why they felt like they could divorce. It's, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter number two or 24, verse number one. It says this, when a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because she hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now, if you read the rabbinical interpretations of that passage, here's what it came to mean in the first century. If there's anything displeasing about your wife, forget whether or not she's clean or unclean. If there's anything that you do not find favorable about her, you can write her a bill of divorcement. So here's this woman who has had five different men say, I don't like you anymore. Get out of my house. Those are the men in that city. Didn't even need to find uncleanness, though probably they might have. This woman has had five different men tell her, I don't favor you anymore. With that in mind, let's read John 4, 16 and 17 again. Jesus saith unto her, go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. She says, I have no husband. Now we would read that and be like, yeah, because you're an adulterer. Well, sure, that might be some truth. But five different times, men have said, I don't find favor in you at all. They didn't want her anymore. They didn't care about her anymore. No doubt, some of that was her fault. But a woman, again, couldn't hand, couldn't hand a man a bill of divorcement. And the Bible says that this woman went back home to this city and to these people and brought them Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't include these conversations, but I'm of the persuasion that some of them at least happened. Could you imagine going home to the, to the man who's not your husband? who wouldn't even give you the dignity of giving you a marriage so that you could go and gather water with the rest of the women, but he has kept you in shame. He'll sleep with you, but he won't marry you. That's a man who hurt this woman. There's no doubt about it in my mind. She brings him the gospel. Could you imagine perhaps over the course of time running into her third husband? She says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever was. Maybe, again, we'll put it in our context. What would it be like to run into your ex's new spouse? There's a connection there. It's not a great one, but it's one that maybe could be leveraged for the gospel. Listen, it's one thing to take the gospel to the people you've hurt. That's hard work. But I think perhaps even harder work 
is leveraging the relationship of the people who have hurt you for the sake of the gospel. Ask Jonah how easy that was. You have a people group who are barbaric, savagely murdering everyone within that region. The the Assyrians would have a huge part in the destruction of the northern kingdom only a handful of generations after Jonah. Ask Jonah how easy it was to take the gospel to a group of people he felt like did not deserve it. Listen, it's not easy to take the gospel to a drunken stepdad who used to abuse you in some way, shape, or form. It's not easy to take the gospel to a coworker who lied about you, tried to get you fired. I remember years ago, and I, can, I shared this to some, many of you are new, but I remember years ago, God began to work in my heart about witnessing to my biological father. Um, I was born Casey Abels. I was adopted by my dad in second grade. Uh, stepdad, good man. Um, but I remember I was here as a pastor and I went to a conference and God began to work in my heart. I remember when I was in college, my, my roommate said, have you ever witnessed to your biological father? I said, why would I do that? That man was abusive, like abusive, abusive. Like there was SWAT. I mean, there was through glass windows. I mean, it was, it was, there was drugs. There was all kinds of awful. And I remember thinking, that is so ridiculous of you to ask me that, that I would somehow feel responsible for his soul. Well, <laughs> I feel like the Lord knew how rebellious my heart was at that time because like seven years, eight years later, that God began to work in my heart about that. And I thought, Lord, that's so unfair. Like there's other people who can take the gospel to him. But God began to work in my heart about leveraging that opportunity to win him to Christ. I did everything I could to reach out, try to find him. I don't even know if he's still alive. But if I could talk to him today and sit across from him, I think statistically I'd have a better chance of winning him to Christ than anybody in this room would because I'm showing him what grace really means. I'm showing him what mercy really means. And it's one thing to take the gospel to someone that we have hurt. It's entirely more difficult, in my opinion, to take the gospel to someone who's hurt us. But isn't that exactly what the gospel is? Grace to the offender, mercy to those who don't deserve it. Isn't that exactly what the gospel did for me? It covered my transgressions. Uh, It made who I used to be pass away. It made me new. And listen, I don't know how this applies to your life. And again, I'm probably causing some measure of discomfort to you because we've all got people who've hurt us. But it might just be that God has uniquely allowed you to offer grace to someone who doesn't deserve it so that they might know about the grace that they don't deserve. Listen, and I know that's uncomfortable, but that's relationship evangelism. Maybe it's a biological parent. Maybe it's an old friend who hurts you. Maybe it's an estranged sibling you haven't talked through since your wedding or whatever. Maybe it's an enemy that you used to have or a family member who hurts you. And I know, I know, I know that's uncomfortable, but listen to me. If you can leverage forgiveness to bring the gospel, you have a responsibility to do so. So sometimes we fear those or we, we allow the fear of who we used to be to stop us from taking the gospel home. Sometimes we allow the fear of who they used to be to stop us from taking the gospel. But notice lastly, and this one's probably the most logical one, um, sometimes we allow the fear of how they might react to stop us from taking the gospel. We are afraid, what if I go home and I tell them what he did and then they reject him? Well, what if I, what if I tell them and it doesn't work? That's actually my favorite part of the whole story. You're going to go down to verse number 40 in just a second. That's my favorite part of the whole story. She doesn't have to convince them to believe anything. All she does is convince them to come and see. She, is, she doesn't come with a robust theology. She doesn't come and say, the Messiah, he's incarnate, and he's God, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. She doesn't even have all those things worked out. Here's what she says. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Notice what she says. Look at verse number 40. 
After she goes and gathers the city to come to him, they come out and they beg Jesus to come and stay. Look at verse 40. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he should tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed, notice the rest of the verse, because of his own word. And said unto the woman, now we believe, not because of thy saying, but rather, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Christian, can I just say this? Jesus can stand on his own two feet if you'll just let them see him. And a lot of times we're afraid of what mom's going to think, what dad's going to think, what our enemy's going to think. If I tell them to come and they see, are they not going to like him? Don't worry about that. You just tell them to come and see. And I love what the people say. Hey, we believe not because you told us, but because we heard him ourselves. We heard his own words. We know he's the Christ. And here's what the Bible clearly asserts to us, that if he's lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. It's not our job to convince them to be saved. We don't have to worry about October the 22nd. What if they come and reject him? What if they come and the word of God is preached and the spirit of God is drawing them and the Holy Spirit is the one who does the saving work in their life? You don't have to worry about what happens. Let Jesus stand on his own two feet. Let the gospel do what the gospel does. It changes people's lives. Again, I want to assert, it says, and they said unto the woman, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. So listen, never let the fear of how they might respond to Christ to keep, you from, keep them from ever getting a chance to respond to Christ. Don't be so afraid of what they'll do when given the opportunity that you never give them the opportunity. Don't let that fear paralyze you. Just give them a chance to see Jesus. You don't have to save mom. You don't have to save your stepdad. You don't have to save your best friend or that enemy. All you have to do is tell them, come and see a man who told me all things ever I was or did. October 22nd is all about that idea of going to our family, of going to our friends, and even going to those who we've hurt or have hurt us, and simply telling them, come see Jesus. He is the savior of the world. It doesn't need to be complicated. We just need to lift him up so that all men can be drawn to him. The gospel message in the Holy Spirit gets to do the work of saving. All you have to do is do the work of calling. Come and see. So I would challenge you. I hope you have your, uh, your envelope. I hope you have your people's names on it. And I hope, and maybe you'll, you'll do some, some thinking this week or even tonight, and maybe you'll put somebody's name on there you didn't want to put on there. If the Holy Spirit tells you to leverage that relationship, then leverage that relationship. Again, I'm not talking about being manipulative. You hurt me, so you better come to church on Sunday and I'll forgive you. No, just show them the grace of saying, hey, I care about you. You care about me? I care about you. I care about your soul. And listen, the beauty of the gospel is the word of God doesn't return void. I will do my very best, and I ask that you pray for me for October the 22nd. I will do my very best to preach nothing but a clear presentation of who Jesus is, what he did, and how he can save them, how they can receive by faith the the message of Jesus Christ. All you have to do and all I have to do before that is just say, hey, come and see. Would you join me October the 22nd, and we're going to have lunch after service, and would you just come and just hear about what Jesus did? True purpose is designed around the idea of, number one, the sermon we're going to preach that morning is, what is the true purpose of Christ? Did he come to start a religion? Did he come to tell everybody how bad they are? Did he come to condemn the world? Or did he come to seek and to save that which is lost? And my hope and my prayer is that God will allow each and every one of us to have somebody on our list that we have both prayed for and invited to come and see what Jesus did for us. That's relationship evangelism. Let's pray.